You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Tuesday to you. We're going to do some herd mentality here today on the podcast. Didn't get to it last week, but I've got a lot to get to. And so today and tomorrow on the podcast, I'm going to catch up on herd mentality and get us back into our normal weekly rhythm. And in case you're new here, herd mentality is the weekly episode where you take control of the content by sending in questions, takes, items, whatever you have regarding the Buffalo Bills or football or whatever you want to ask. And I address it here on the podcast. So let's do just that. First one today comes from Greg. Greg says, I kept hearing on pods the last two weeks that Ed Oliver played the one tech role last year too much. Can you put a number behind it? What percentage of snaps were as a one tech? Also, what does it take to be a good punt returner? Seems like good hands and short area quickness are two keys. My line of thinking is, can Hodgins take the punt return duties and Stevenson take the kick return duties? And this makes Isaiah McKenzie cuttable. All right, so some really good questions here, starting with the Ed Oliver piece of this and him playing one tech too much last season. The reality is he didn't. Ed Oliver did not play one technique very much at all. And a one technique is a player that is lined up in the A-gap. According to Pro Football Focus, and they chart where players line up on every single snap, 36 of Ed Oliver's 578 snaps in 2020, he played one technique or lined up in the A-gap. Only 6.2% of his total snaps. 36 of 578 snaps, according to Pro Football Focus, had Ed Oliver aligned in the A-gap as a one-technique nose tackle. 542 of his 578 snaps, he aligned from the B-gap or wider. So the reality is Ed Oliver didn't play much one-technique at all in 2020. Where I do think it was to his detriment is because the Bills didn't have an actual one technique or plug, if you will, or a nose tackle or a gap defender to play alongside him. So while no, he didn't spend much time at all in the a gap, he did not have the benefit of having a legit a gap defender next to him. As to your question on Isaiah Hodgins as a punt returner, Stevenson as a kick returner, what goes into being a good punt returner? Um, Isaiah Hodgins actually was a good punt returner in high school. I know that he had four punt return touchdowns, and Stevenson was a terrific kick returner at Houston. My concern about Isaiah Hodgins in that role is that he didn't do it at Oregon State, so it's been a while since that's been on his plate. I'm not going to assume that he can't do it, but you know that is something to keep in mind. But what goes into being a good punt returner, I think, number one, is being able to Cleanly field the football. Not going to muff it. You're going to catch it cleanly every single time. Number two, that you know when to catch it and when to let it bounce. 
I'm sure you guys have watched football before and the punt returner doesn't field the football and it hits the ground and it rolls 15, 20 yards the other way. We call that hidden yards. Nothing's hidden about that to me. It's right there. You could start the drive at the 30, but because your punt returner didn't catch the football and it rolled to the 10, you just had a 20-yard loss. Those aren't hidden yards. They're right there. So can you catch it cleanly? Can you field it cleanly and handle the ball cleanly? And then do you know how to make the right decision? When to call a fair catch? When to let it hit the ground? When to field it and go? And then you start getting into, you know, what can you do with the ball in your hands? To me, that's that's such a distant priority after decision-making and ball handling and those types of things. Then I start to care about, okay, well, what can you do once you have the ball? Especially for this Bills offense. You've heard me say it. Like, I just want for when there's supposed to be a change of possession and Josh Allen and the offense are set to take control of the football, I just want that to happen. So could this be a possibility? Yes, I do. I do think it's a possibility. You know, does Isaiah Hodgins have the ability to make those decisions and field punts cleanly? Well, he has really good hands. I I would say that for sure. Some of the best hands I've seen. But catching a football that's thrown to you versus off the foot as a punt, being able to handle the wind and, you know, everything that goes with being a punt returner in the NFL as opposed to high school the last time we've seen him do it, it's a fair question to ask. But, yeah, I would definitely give him some exposure and opportunity to see if he can do that. And then you can really diversify your wide receiver core. If you can find that role for Hodgins and, of course, Stevenson claiming the kick return duties. I will say this on Stevenson. Kind of weird that we didn't get a single report on this guy coming out of OTAs. I mean, he was there throughout voluntary, mandatory, a lot of practices that beat reporters were able to observe. Not a peep. I didn't see a peep about this guy. And we're not talking about a position that's difficult to evaluate in that scenario, right? It's non-contact. So you're not going to really know much about Tommy Doyle or Spencer Brown or even, you know, the defensive linemen, Rousseau and Basham. Like, how much can you really glean from non-padded practices when you're a lineman. But when you're a receiver, you should be able to have some takeaways. We didn't hear a thing about this guy. Maybe I missed it. If I did, send me the links, guys. I, I want to see the reports. But I haven't heard anything about Marquez Stevenson and how he fared at OTAs despite playing a position that is absolutely possible to evaluate in that scenario. Next one today comes from Chris who says, Your pot about Levi Wallace got me thinking. You and Bruce Nolan have frequently pointed out that McDermott almost always has one stud corner and one get-by guy. Where would you rank Trey among the stud corners he's had, and where would you rank Wallace among the get-by guys? I was also wondering if McDermott ever had a significantly better athlete at CB2 than Wallace, and if he did, did that impact McDermott's play calling? I know there have been many, myself included, pounding the table for a more athletic CB2 because then we can run more defensive schemes. But if McDermott isn't going to change how he calls the defense, does it really matter that much? So let's do a little refresher here on Sean McDermott and how he's handled CB2. And yes, it has very much been a stud and a quote-unquote get-by guy. Let's go all the way back to 2012 in Carolina. He had Josh Norman 
who was a rookie fifth-round pick out of Coastal Carolina, playing opposite of Captain Munderland, who was the CB1. 2013, Captain Munderland was the CB1. Melvin White was the guy opposite of him. And <laughs> Melvin White didn't have much of a career. That's probably the, the lowest guy in terms of his CB2s. Then in 2014, Josh Norman emerged as their CB1, and opposite of him was Antoine Quezon who never played another snap after 2014. And the Panthers were his third team in as many years when he was the primary starter opposite of Josh Norman. In 2015, it was Josh Norman as CB1, and then Peanut Tillman opposite of him. And this is late-stage Peanut Tillman, 34 years old in the last year of his career. 2016, you had James Bradbury and Daryl Worley both as the starters. They were rookies. Worley was a third-rounder out of West Virginia. Bradbury was a second-rounder out of Samford. And this is after the Panthers let Josh Norman walk and he signed with Washington. So you didn't even have your 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 traditional McDermott stud and get-by guy. You had a couple of rookie draft picks that you were hoping could get the job done. Then he goes to Buffalo. In 2017, Trey White is your CB1. Opposite of him is uh, EJ Gaines. Remember him? Uh, six-rounder out of Missouri, already had injury concerns at that point in his career. 2018, Trey White, CB1, and then it was this revolving door of Vontae Davis, Philip Gaines, Ryan Smith, and Levi Wallace opposite of Trey. And then in 2019 and 2020, CB1, Trey White, CB2, Levi Wallace, and 19 to 20. 19 to 20, listen to this. 2019 to 2020 was the only year that Sean McDermott had the same pair of starting outside corners throughout his time in Carolina or Buffalo. That's crazy, right? He's never had the same two guys for consecutive seasons as his primary outside corners, and there's a good chance it happens for a third consecutive season this year with Levi Wallace and Trey White getting the job done again. So I would say very clearly... Trey White is the best CB1 McDermott's ever had in terms of his time at Carolina in Buffalo. And then I think because Levi Wallace has been this mainstay that nobody else has been able to do under McDermott. It's never happened. Because he's been able to be this primary starter for this long, he might be the best get-by guy that McDermott's ever had. So, really good question. I hope that shed some light on it. The, the other part of your question was about, okay, well, has there been better athletes? And if so, did we really see a philosophical change in the way that McDermott would call the defense? Did you actually get the more man coverage? I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I, I, that would take a lot of work for me to, to come up with that. But the answer, the, short, the, the answer that I speculate being true is that no, it hasn't. And that's kind of... That's the interesting part of this whole conversation about this desire for a more athletic CB2. I want that too, right? So I, I definitely fully acknowledge that I'm in that boat. But if it doesn't matter because McDermott's not going to call more man coverage, then we're wasting our time, right? Because he's still going to call defense the way he wants to call defense. It could lead to more opportunity and coverage scheme versatility 
But I don't think we have anything that we can point to for sure that says it will happen. And so <laughs> when, you, when you really look at this thing, it could be just a, a big waste of energy to have this conversation. Next one today comes from Burnt, who says, I've heard Dable's name associated with the Earhart Perkins offense multiple times, but have never really understood what this was. Could you explain what makes this system so complex and what exactly makes an EP offense an EP offense as opposed to other schools of offensive thought? All right, so the big difference between the Earhart Perkins offense and the other ones, which would be West Coast or Air Coriel, is because pass routes are bundled into concepts rather than individual routes. So like in the Air Coriel or the West Coast offense, the routes are called out and they're these long, drawn-out play calls that tells you specifically what you're supposed to do on a particular play. For the Bills and the teams that run an Earhart Perkins offense, it's very much, okay, we're running Smash or we're running China. And those are the name of concepts. And based on the concept, then you execute accordingly, which could include adjusting on the fly and reading the leverage of the corner or reading the type of defense that they run on the fly and adjusting from there. I pulled this from a Grantlin article that I thought really summed up what makes the EP offense unique. And this is this is what it says. The backbone of the Earhart Perkins system is that plays, past plays in particular, are not organized by a route tree or by calling a single receiver's route, but by what coaches refer to as concepts. Each play has a name, and that name conjures up an image for both the quarterback and the other players on offense. And most importantly, the concept can be called from almost any formation or set. Who does what changes but the theory and tactics driving the play do not. In essence, you're running the same play, you're just giving them some window dressing to make it look different. So hopefully that sheds some light on it. Um, It's a lot of adjusting on the fly, a lot of thinking, a lot of processing, a lot of understanding concepts and what they're designed to do. And you can dress it up, you can have different personnel groupings, different formations, and run a lot of the same plays but it's because it's concept-based as opposed to this very long, drawn-out play call that specifically identifies what each person is supposed to do on the play. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all the action at Bet Online. Get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including MLB, NBA, NHL, and the UFC. Before the next pitch, head over to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news, sign-up bonuses, and contest information. Don't sit in the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get in the game. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use our promo code LOCKEDON. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Next one today comes from Alex who says, Hey Joe, I've got a fun one for you. I stole this idea from Chris Sims's podcast. If all 32 head coach and quarterback combinations had a Royal Rumble wrestling match, which duo would win? Where would McDermott and Allen rank? Fun question. You would think that Sean McDermott and Josh Allen would be very high on the list. 
Obviously, Sean McDermott, a very accomplished wrestler, very in-shape guy. I know he's not very big, but you know he's a guy that is very tactical and knows what he's doing. Josh Allen, probably the most physically imposing quarterback in the NFL right now. So, like, who's the competition? The the name that stands out to me is Mike Vrabel and Ryan Tannehill with the Tennessee Titans. That's kind of the one that makes me say, hmm, you know, I think hey, there could be something there. You think about Cam Newton, but like Bill Belichick's the head coach, so they're cooked. Um, I think it could be a, a two-horse race between the Titans and Bills when it comes to Vrabel and Tannehill up against uh, McDermott and Allen. Bob says, last year Josh Allen had an MVP-like season. Do you think the COVID-19 restrictions helped him? No outside distractions, no crowd noise making it easier to audible and keeping his adrenaline at an acceptable level helping eliminate the dumb plays. Do you think the front office is waiting to see him perform in a more normal setting before negotiating an extension so as not to have a Carson Wentz situation? Or do you think they believe they have their guy and an extension is right around the corner? So this has been a pretty popular question that I've received about Josh Allen, how he performed last year, and if COVID and empty stadiums and all those dynamics helped him. Sure they did. But they were a benefit to every quarterback in the NFL. And if it was that meaningful, why didn't more quarterbacks have Josh Allen-like seasons? And why were there still so many quarterbacks that struggled mightily? That's, that's kind of what I get hung up on. If this was this big determining factor that made Josh Allen so good, why didn't it happen for more quarterbacks? Who were the other breakout star quarterbacks that were even close to what Josh Allen did? Didn't help Sam Darnold. Didn't help Teddy Bridgewater. Didn't help, uh, (laughs) you know, I mean, Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz regressed in, in this scenario. Daniel Jones was the same. You know, I'm just trying to think of young quarterbacks that still have a lot to prove. So that's kind of what I'm clinging to. I'm sure it was beneficial for sure, but we still saw Josh Allen play at a high level against the Colts in the playoffs. We still seen him play uh, against Miami at Miami where there was fans. I mean, he's played football at a high level in front of other humans in the stands. So I don't want to be completely dismissive of this point, but I'm, I just don't want to put a whole lot of stock in it either. As far as my belief on what the Bills think they have, I think they're very convinced that Josh Allen is their guy that they are going to commit a lot of money to in an extension. So I think it's just a matter of time and that it's right around the corner. Chris says that I enjoyed the Bills content creators that you aired regarding the top 10 most important players to the future of the Buffalo Bills. Since roster building is a passion of yours, I'm curious for your take that a running back did not make the consensus list. I'm a huge admirer of Bill Polian, and he used to espouse the need for elite triplets, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, as a core to building a roster. And then uh, Chris mentions drafting Thurman Thomas and Edgerin James early. I know that the game is different now with the salary cap and how risky it is to have a running back with a high cap number. You have also spoken before about how the Bills are a passing offense in a passing league, so my question is really more, philosophical on roster construction than practical. So I didn't come away surprised at all that none of the Bills content creators included a running back on the list except for Jay Spence, who had Devin Singletary, I think, as his 10th guy. Nobody else had either running back. And I think 
the root of that probably has more to do with Moss and Singletary not really being worthy, right? Like they're not difference maker type backs. They don't move the needle in terms of, all right, this guy, because of what he can do, is critical to where this team can go. Um, if they had Alvin Kamara or Christian McCaffrey or a back of that caliber, Dalvin Cook or something like that, I'm sure that they would have been represented well on the list. But a big part of it probably had to do with the backs that we had at our disposal to consider. As far as my belief that having this triplet situation of quarterback, running back, wide receiver, um, I'm for elite triplets, but you can just throw the running back piece out. Give me a tight end. Give me a wide receiver, two wide receivers. Um, I think that is more meaningful than the running back piece of this. Um, So it would not be something philosophically that I would care about at all. If I were an NFL general manager, my running back situation would be very fluid all the time. And there'd be a lot of rookies and low-cost veterans that came in and out and that would be how we filled that spot, and we would put a lot more emphasis in quarterback, wide receiver, and offensive line. Dominic says, where do you think Isaiah Hodgins will fit into this roster? Last preseason before he got hurt, I remember him and Gabe Davis were pretty much neck and neck in training camp. With a deep and tough receiver core as is with four receivers a lock to make the 53 in Diggs, Beasley, Davis, and Sanders, is there room for Isaiah to make it? I think it's going to be tough for Isaiah Hodgins to make it unless the Bills keep seven wide receivers, and historically they have not kept seven wide receivers. So if they keep seven, I think Isaiah Hodgins has a really good chance. If it's only six, and we already can agree that those top four are in place, and you think Isaiah McKenzie's probably going to be number five, and that at number six it's probably going to be Marquez Stevenson because he's a draft pick, and the Bills have historically kept their draft picks on the active roster. And so... That's going to make it tough, especially because I don't think Isaiah Hodgins projects well to playing outside on the line of scrimmage at wide receiver. I think he's a big slot, and I'm not sure that he has the type of makeup that lends itself well to really being an asset covering kicks and punts. So I get nervous about those components of Isaiah Hodgins when it comes to this roster, but I will say go back and listen to our podcast last week. I think it was either Wednesday or Thursday where I really dug into Isaiah Hodgins and his skill set and his path to the roster. Need to tell you guys about Built Bar. It's the best tasting protein bar ever. So many amazing flavors. They're all delicious. They're all covered in 100% chocolate. They're soft and easy to chew. It's like eating a candy bar, but they are good for you. Built Bars are great for anyone who is health conscious. Whether you want to lose weight, maintain weight, or just indulge in a delicious treat, you have to try Built Bars. They're low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber, and great for anyone who is on the keto diet. I've got a deal for you. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKED15, and you'll get 15% off your next order. Again, that's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. Next one today comes from Vin. Vin says, Joe, I wanted to get your thoughts on the Bills' wall of fame. If I could rank the players that I think are most deserving, I would probably go one Eric Moulds, two Kyle Williams, three Aaron Schobel, four Fred Jackson. How would you rank them and how do mine differ from yours? I think you got the right four players. I mean, those are standout Buffalo Bills players that meant something to the organization. I do agree with you that Eric Molds should be number one. The guy nearly had 10,000 
receiving yards for his career. I mean, he was a dynamic playmaker on the Bills football team when there just wasn't a whole lot else to be excited about. So I love Eric Moulds. The first jersey that I ever purchased was Eric Moulds. Uh, so I'm with you there. Now, it's interesting between Kyle Williams and Aaron Schobel. You have Williams at two and Schobel at three. I love Kyle Williams, but I think, you know, Schobel as a player that is much further from retirement, like, you know, Kyle Williams just hung it up pretty recently. I think Aaron Schobel, for his run with the team and where he ranks in terms of the all time sackers on the team, you know, he got he had an awesome career. So I would put him above Kyle Williams. Then I would have Kyle Williams and Fred Jackson. Roger says, it seems when analysts discuss NFL offensive tackle prospects, they often say that this prospect is better suited to play guard in the NFL. They said this about Cordy Glenn, Deion Dawkins, and Cody Ford. Are Spencer Brown and Tommy Doyle offensive tackles only? Is six foot eight too tall to play interior? We know the Bills love positional flexibility. If we are deep in offensive tackle, might we have Ryan Bates concentrate on being a full-time center with the possibility of replacing Morse in the future? As it stands, if Morse gets hurt, Feliciano moves over, then we bring in a guard impacting two positions. Really good question here, Roger. So a lot of times whenever we talk about tackles, college offensive tackles that need to be guards in the NFL, it really stems from foot speed. And, you know, at offensive tackle, you're on an island. You're going up against these twitchy, speedy pass rushers. It just requires a lot more foot speed and a lot more length to give yourself some margin for air to get your hands on these guys. On the interior, you're going up against a different body composition, right? Like stubby, different body builds at defensive tackle than on the outside. Um, and because of that, you don't need as much foot speed because they're not going to get to your edges quick and, you know, nearly as quick. But what you need to be able to do is be able to hold at the point of attack. You need to be firm and stout, and you need to be able to get your hands on guys and win and control reps with your hands. But that doesn't necessarily require length because it's a different type of uh, dynamic in terms of the space you're responsible for. So now as we apply this to Doyle and Spencer Brown, and the root of your question being, is 6'8", too tall to play interior, I think it is. I think there is such a thing as being too long and too tall to play inside because the action happens a lot quicker, which doesn't really help you in terms of length. But if you are that tall and guys can get into you, you just, you're not proportioned right to absorb power quick. So yes, you can absolutely be too tall and too long to play guard, and I think that 1 million percent applies to Doyle and Brown. I think your your hope for versatility with Brown and Doyle is that you feel good about them playing left and right tackle. I don't think either one projects well at all to playing guard. Now, your point about Ryan Bates is a good one. If you feel like you are deep at tackle, yeah, have this guy focus at center. That way, if Morse goes down or if you wind up needing to replace him in the future, you kind of have this ready-made option and you're not having to affect multiple positions up front. So I think that's a really, really good point. Last one today comes from Ryan who says, really enjoyed your 2018 draft recap podcast. I have a question related to the 2019 draft class as a whole. 
I know the general consensus is that a draft class needs three full seasons before they can be fairly evaluated, but after year two, I've got to say that 2019 looks like a dog's breakfast. A lot of first-round players are going to have to make a significant leap forward to justify their draft pedigree. Outside of Nick Bosa, is there anyone really deserving of a top 10 pick at this point in time? Fun question. And so I did a little research here and I I tried to come up with the 10 names. If I felt like the 2019 draft were to be done again today, the 10 players that I think would be most deserving of a top 10 pick, this is them. And this isn't in any particular order. This is just the, the order I wrote them down. So you mentioned Nick Bosa. He's one. Quarterback Kyler Murray from the Arizona Cardinals. He's definitely worthy of a top 10 pick and he's been very productive and I know he has some different types of limitations, but um, you know he's had some really high-level moments as well. Uh, linebacker Devin White from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Wide receiver A.J. Brown from the Tennessee Titans. Wide receiver D.K. Metcalf from the Seattle Seahawks. Try to tell you guys. Try to tell you. Uh, edge rusher Montez Sweat from the Washington football team. Terry McLaurin, wide receiver from the Washington football team. Darnell Savage, a safety from the Green Bay Packers. Brian Burns, edge rusher, Carolina Panthers. Try to tell you. And then uh, Jeffrey Simmons, defensive tackle from the Tennessee Titans. I think those 10 players are the guys that today I would say, if the thing was redrafted, those are your top 10 picks, or the guys that are most deserving. And I think of them, I'd say a fair amount of them are legitimate top 10 caliber talents, now obviously with the benefit of hindsight. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today here on the podcast. More herd mentality is coming tomorrow. Like I said, I have a lot to catch up on. So if you heard back from me in email or DM, rest assured that your item is coming on the podcast tomorrow. So two episodes of herd mentality this week to catch up and make up for missing it last week. But uh, a lot of creative concepts are coming your way. I've got the whole calendar built out between now and training camp and through training camp and preseason until we get to our regular season routine. So you can rest assured that the podcast goes on daily, Monday through Friday. There's plenty to talk about with this football team, and we're going to do it here on the podcast. So don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review, share the podcast, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.